absolutely necessary that we become fully conscious to an element of his character. He is a God of action. We know Jesus loves us and is to be trusted by his actions. He said, deny yourselves because he denied himself. He said, take up your cross because he took up his cross and then went to his death for you. He didn't say, I love you, trust me, with no action. Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will do this. Do this means act. Trust in him and he will act. So how do we commit our way to the Lord? Knowing that Jesus loves and provides for us by doing. How do we follow him in that way? How do we take action for Jesus? Well, by constantly looking for him. Seeking his face. No matter what we are facing in our life today, tomorrow, next week, this coming year. No matter what your circumstances are. Whether it's health. Finances, whether it's a broken marriage or relationships, whether what you're facing is a mountain of sin that you can't seem to get through. We don't give up seeking his face and expecting Jesus to come and to free us. Song of Songs, chapter 3. All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. She looked for Jesus. I looked for him, but did not find him. She didn't give up. I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him but did not find him. But she didn't stop there. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves 
and I held him and would not let him go. The bride held on to Jesus and wouldn't let him go. So no matter what mountain you are facing today, there is one thing that will consistently get God's attention. Looking for him. That's an action. It's a crucial action. Expecting him everywhere. Just because your circumstances don't show that he's right there, expect him. By reading the word, by standing on the promises that Jesus has spoken over your life, the rhema word to you, by praying, by dealing to the bottom with your sin, by pleading with Jesus to speak to you, that he would show up by actively waiting amidst the pain, by pursuing Jesus, by taking action for him, with him, under him. He will come. He will free you. He will take action for you. This is the character of Jesus, and this is the God that we serve. Welcome to the National Prayer Chapel. Would you fulfill your purpose in the life of this church? And would you fulfill your purpose in this nation? Lord, would you fulfill your purpose in my life? I pray in your holy name. Amen. Many years ago in philosophy class, I had to read the writings of Albert Camus, the great French philosopher. He taught that if you were driving down the road and a child crossed the road in front of you, and you struck and killed that child with your car, that it had no moral meaning. It would have legal repercussions, but there was no moral issue involved. That, in fact, there was no ability to know right from wrong, except as the society decided what was right or wrong. There was no eternal foundation of righteousness. I remember many years ago, I read for the first time C.S. Lewis and Narnia. I love the Narnia series. If you've never read them, You are missing a great treat. But in the land of Narnia, Aslan, the lion, rules. 
Aslan is not always visibly present. But in the land of Narnia, the creatures, some of them, were able to talk. The horses had great wisdom to share. Some of the little ones, like the mouse and his mighty sword, could undo an enemy quickly by piercing his foot with that sword. They would fall and then he'd finish them. They could all talk. But there came into Narnia a foreign army. And as the talking creatures began to go over to the powerful foreign army, they would lose their ability to speak. And they would become what were called dumb horses or dumb mice. They had lost their ability to speak. God had a purpose for creating us. He created moral absolutes. And part of what happened in Rome, which was given utterly to ungodliness with no moral value except for them the power of the sword, If a man could kill you, he had power over you. And so most of the inhabitants of Rome were slaves. They were utterly given to every kind of sexual immorality. There were no moral values in Rome. Pedophilia. Every uncleanness was present in Rome. The baths were the most popular places for these wicked men and women. Nudity was rampant. Violence. Every kind of evil blossomed and grew in Rome. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ came slamming into it like a sledgehammer. The morality of the teaching of the gospel said there are moral absolutes that are beyond any of our own authority. And when you break those absolutes, you lose your ability to be human. Imagine the little slave girl. When she was told that she was of immense value to God, that she mattered. What incredible news to her when all of her life she's been treated like an animal. She's been treated like a thing, a possession. And all of her humanity has been stripped away. And suddenly this person is telling her about a God who thinks she is worth something. A God who looks at her 
and wants to transform her life. A God who is offering his son as a sacrifice that she no longer has to be a dumb animal. But she can be brought alive in the blood of Jesus Christ. And suddenly this powerful word of the gospel slamming into Rome begins to transform Rome. They did not give up easily. They began to execute these people. They began to kill them in the most horrendous kinds of way. But they could not stop this good news from penetrating this utterly wicked city. God has a purpose for your life. There is an absolute right and wrong. There are moral imperatives in the way we act and in the way we think. America has cast off this incredible news of Jesus Christ and is running as fast as it can to be like Rome, where everything is about pleasure. Pleasure of eating. Have you ever noticed some people when they eat, they stuff it in as fast as they can, and if you speak to them, they'll barely even grunt at you. All they care about is getting that food in. That's their God. Give me food. And then it changes. Give me gourmet food. Give me the finest chocolate. Give me the finest meat. I only want the filet mignon. It must be aged. It must be dried. It must be totally tender. Suddenly, all of the attention is on the wine and the food. A woman. She has to be the perfect specimen of womanhood. She must be an object of immense desire. We're told in the scriptures that it was the fallen angels who came and taught women how to paint their faces, how to seduce men. They learned very quickly and very easily. And men enjoyed it until they became simply objects with no personal dignity and no personal worth except for how they could please a man. America is running as fast as we can run as a nation toward the decadence of Rome. And so we are losing our ability in America to speak, and we are becoming dumb horses and dumb mice. We are becoming the offspring of Camus and Nietzsche, where our minds are filled violence and the wickedness of our age. That is not what God intends. 
And he's going to draw together and form a people called the church who once more he is going to use like a sledgehammer against the modern culture of America. Because God will have a people who will be righteous. Now the scripture I want to read for you is in James, the first chapter. I'm going to begin with verse 23. James, the first chapter, verse verse 22. Now you must be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, this one is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Now he observed himself and has gone away and immediately forgot what he was like. But the one having looked into the perfect law, the one of liberty, and having continued, this one is not becoming a forgetful hearer, but a doer of work. This one will be blessed in his doing. If anyone among you considers himself to be religious, not bridling his tongue, but deceiving his heart, this one's religion is worthless. Now with that in the frame, let's look at the, at the frame that it's in, this picture. Let's look at that. And to do that, we have to go back again and lay a firmer understanding so that we can talk about doing. Doing is a very dangerous thing. And every morning when you get up, you begin to do. And you do all day long. The question is, do you do your own pleasure or are you doing the will of God? Do you know the difference between doing your will and doing the will of God? And what glory in the new covenant when it promises that he will write his law on our heart so that when we're doing what we want to do, we will be doing God's will. That's where we need to be. So let's go back now and again set the stage. In verse 18, James writes, Having willed it, he brought us into being by a word of truth. God has a purpose for your life. But the primary purpose of your life is not doing Doing is the result of having God's will accomplished in your heart. So if you begin to say, okay, I'm going to do everything God wants me to do. Because God wants me to do it. How is that not self-help? How is that not just flesh? 
And I've done it many times and I've utterly failed. There has to be a more basic understanding behind this. And that is that God has a purpose for me. And that purpose is not to do, but to be. I want to show you. Having willed it, he brought us into being by a word of truth. God called you into this world. He knit you together in your mama's womb. He knew who you would be. He called you to come forth. Why? To be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. In other words, God ordained that you should exist so that you would be a demonstration of God's love in who you are. I've been very frustrated, even recently, that God has not set me free to do at a level what I know I can do. What I have wanted all of my life to accomplish. And he has blocked me and not allowed me to do that. Until it finally began to seep into my heart that it wasn't what I want to do that will bring glory to God. What will bring glory to God is who I am, who I have allowed him to make me to be. You know how I like to get things done? I like to mow grass. Come on, guys, let's get it on. Let's do it. And if somebody gets in the way, let's shove them aside. Let's make it happen. I was raised as a doer. The only way to get the garden clean is to grab a hoe and go hoe it. So let's go do it. The only way to accomplish a task is to get the right tools and go get it done. We've all been raised this way. We know that what needs to be done will not be done as we sit in our easy chair and think about it being done. Things don't get done that way. Buildings are not built by someone sitting in the parking lot dreaming about what it would be to have a building there. No, it takes hit construction manager to come and begin to lay it out and say, okay, let's get this foundation in. Am I right? That's how things are done. Well, God is not interested as much in getting the building built as he is in the heart of the people he wants to build it. The temple of God, this great temple that was built by by Solomon, Everything was prepared off-site. 
there was not to be the sound of a hammer or a saw on site. There was no chiseling. The blocks were hauled in and set up and fit together without mortar so that a knife could not go between them. It was to be a silent building site. That meant there had to be a lot of work off-site to create all of the pieces that fit together in the puzzle. Well, God is working off-site to build his temple as he brings and slides that block into place that is, as the scriptures call it, a holy stone laid for the temple of God. So he wants to do the work off-site. And then he wants to bring that stone in and slip it into his building for his glory. Now, what does that look like? Pastor James begins to tell us. If you look with me at verse 19... So then, my beloved brothers and sisters, all men, all people, must be swift to hear. Husbands, I want you to hear this. God wants you to listen to your wife. I mean, listen to your wife. Not cutting her off. Not trying to rush her. Not being defensive. Not being hostile. Not being upset by what she says. He wants you to listen. The character of Christ in a person is first found in a person who is willing to listen. Wives, listen to your husband. Don't tell him you're too busy and you have to go do this or that. Listen to him. Without judgment, without offense. The first mark, according to Pastor James, of a person being transformed into being the stone that he can use is a person who is willing to lay their defenses down and listen. So many times I've caught myself listening to somebody, hoping they'd shut up so I could tell them, all the wisdom that I have. Hey, I'm being honest. Have you ever done that? You're tired of their yammering and you just want to tell them how it is. You want to set them straight because your time is valuable. Because you don't want to listen to them any longer. You don't like what they're saying. You're uncomfortable with what they're saying. And you're going to set it straight so you can get on down the road and get... Great things done for God. 
the first mark that God is beginning to move in the heart of a man or a woman or a boy or girl is that they're willing to listen without judgment. They're willing to hear and understand what the other person is trying to say to them. Their hearts are open. They're not filled with the arrogance and anger that causes them to cut off that person. To my knowledge, the word is not used in Scripture, but I'm going to tell you there's more gospel in this one word than almost any other word. And that word is curiosity. You cannot listen and not be a curious person. And I know, as a kid, my mom used to always say to me, Raymond, curiosity killed the cat. And then I learned a reply. And my reply was, yes, mama, but satisfaction brought him back. Curiosity is a gift of God. It's a key part of hearing. If you have no curiosity about what the other person is thinking or feeling, if you have no curiosity to ask them questions, they will never feel as though they're listened to. Now, please, there's another part of listening that is absolutely vital. After you have listened to someone, don't then begin to tell them what you think. Instead, say to them, May I say back to you what you just said to me, certain that I heard you? And so now you begin to repeat back to them what they have said. And then you ask them, is that what you said? Is that what you meant? No, you haven't heard me yet. And on it goes until finally they're clear that you heard them. May I say this to you, please? One of the greatest gifts you can give to another person is to hear their heart. The greatest gift you can give your wife or your husband or your child is the certainty that you have heard them. And if they can't feel heard by you, how will they ever think that God has heard them? The most important thing in my life is that God hears my prayers. I need God to hear me. If I will not hear anyone else, how can I expect God to hear me? If I am so full of my own arrogance, so full of my own stuff, that I can't take time to hear another person. How will I ever know that God has heard me? For the measure you use is the measure that will be used unto you. If you cannot hear those around you, God cannot hear your prayers. 
many men have their prayers hindered by their refusal to listen to their wives. Now the Apostle James goes further. All men must be swift to hear, slow to speak, No comeback. It's important that we understand that when another person is speaking to us their truth, that's all it is. It's their truth. It's not my truth. And I have to be willing to disconnect and not become defensive by what they're saying. A dear friend said to me this week, Will you get angry at me if I tell you something that I'm upset with you about? I said, are you kidding? I welcome it. Because I'll know it's about you, not me. We laughed. I said, no, seriously, I want to hear what you have to say. I treasure what you will say to me. And then I said back to them what they said to me. Did I hear you correct? Yes, pastor, you heard me correctly. And we talked it through. And there was friendship built between us. When I could have had a quick comeback and totally blocked this person in relationship with me by being quick to speak. Now, does the simplicity of this message offend you? These are simple things. This is not complicated rocket science. But let me show you what happens. So then, my beloved brethren, all men must be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, slow to anger. I hear people say to me, I don't abide fools very well. And I want to say to them, but don't, how do you how do you manage to live with yourself? Because you just proved that you're a fool. There seems to be a residual anger that many of us carry in our soul. Anger about the past. Anger about our present situation. Anger that we don't get our way. Anger that we haven't been listened to the way we want to be listened to. I can hear some of you now go home and say, Pastor said you're supposed to listen to me. (laughs) No. (laughs) Pastor said, you go home and listen. (laughs) Slow to anger. Now, listen to verse 20. 
For the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Anger never glorifies Jesus Christ. The anger of man's heart does not glorify Jesus. There is a root of anger that many of us have carried out of our past experiences and even out of our current experiences that things don't work, that people don't do, that our expectations are not met, and that triggers anger in our hearts. You need to hear very clearly today that anger never serves the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are not called to be angry people. We are called to be people of love and mercy and compassion. And we're going to speak later about James saying that mercy trumps justice. That mercy trumps justice. So for those people in your life that God has given to you that trigger anger in your spirit, God is being gracious to you in allowing you to see that there is that root of anger and it must be removed. Now we've been speaking about you must be doers of the word. If you are a doer of the word in bitter, angry heart and spirit, you are destroying what you're trying to do for the kingdom of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13 says, I can give my body to be burned, but if I am without love, I'm a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. So on one side, I'm called to be a doer of truth. But if I am a doer of truth and neglecting to listen to my wife or to my husband, or if I am walking in bitterness and anger, I can do the right things. And the kingdom of God is not built. I can be very, very religious and do my duty. And the Lord say, I don't know you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. It comes back to what is that doing flowing out of? Is it flowing out of a bitter heart? Is it flowing out of a heart that feels entitled? Do you ever think... That person owes me, and I'm going to collect. I gave them this. Now they better give me that. Or do you sometimes give to people expecting in the secret part of your heart that because you gave this to them, they ought to give you? Look, this is a two-way deal. I give and you give. I'm tired of giving to you. Really? That's a dead end. 
I don't give because you give to me. I give because Jesus gave everything to me. And out of that well of his giving, I can pour out my heart for you. I come to the National Prayer Chapel. Not asking you to give to me. I come here expecting to pour my heart out for you. My time, my energy, my money, my love. I come to pour it out because Jesus Christ has given to me the kingdom of heaven. A marriage is not 50-50. A marriage is 100-100. And if you all will pardon me again, let me speak to married people. Have you given your life, have you given your heart to your partner? Have you given your heart to your partner? Have you laid your heart down for them? No matter how they act, no matter what they say, whether they give to you or not, whether they meet your expectation or not, have you unreservedly given your heart To your partner. If you cannot give your heart to your partner, how can you give your heart to Jesus Christ? Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the book Life Together was so painful for me. He wrote this book in the underground seminary in Germany, knowing that he may lay his life down for the German people. And he did lay his life down for the German people. He was executed by Hitler. He said, the way you can test and know what your relationship with God is like by looking at what your relationship is with the people around you. Examine your relationship with your wife And you will see what your relationship is to Jesus Christ. Look at what your relationship is with your husband. And then you will know what your relationship is like with Jesus Christ. Have you given your heart to be one flesh with the one God has given to you? And obviously, the way you do that is by listening. You lay your heart down for your partner by listening. By being slow to speak any word of judgment or criticism. By being very slow to anger. Or impatience. Impatience is just another cop-out word for anger.
our anger does not work the righteousness of God. Now, verse 21 says, Therefore, having already taken off all moral uncleanness and the residue of depravity, in humility you must receive the engrafted word. The only way you can do what I'm talking about is if you have engrafted into your heart the intervenous feeding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Can I say that again? The only way you can walk without anger and bitterness is to have engrafted into you the intravenous feeding of the blood of Jesus Christ. the engrafted word, the one being able to save your soul. And then you're ready to become a doer of the word. And the doing flows out of love and compassion, mercy, not out of self-righteousness, Not out of bitterness, not out of impatience, not out of ambition, but out of the heart of Jesus. We're out of time. I have several scriptures I want to share with you. I'm just going to give them to you now. I'll be working with them on the radio this week. James, the fourth chapter, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, you must be subject to God and must resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You must draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You must cleanse your hands, you sinners, and must purify your hearts, you double-minded You must lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be changed to mourning and your joy to heaviness. You must be humbled before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And then 1 Peter, the fifth chapter. I'll begin reading in 5b. God sets himself against the proud but gives grace to the humble. Consequently, you must be humble under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the right time having cast all your worry upon him because he cares for you. You must be sober. 
You must be alert. Your accuser, the devil, is walking around as a roaring lion, seeking somebody he may devour. You must set yourself against him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are being endured by your brotherhood in the world. Now the God of all grace the one having called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after having suffered a little while, he himself will restore you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory and power into all of the ages. Amen. Mighty God, it's a simple word. It's not hard to understand. But Lord, it cuts right across that arrogant inner being that resists the call to be like you, Jesus. Only you can accomplish this supernatural work in our hearts. Only you can humble us under your hand and cause us to no longer be defensive and angry lifting up our fist against another. Lord, we plead today your grace. Thank you, Jesus. I glorify your name. I pray in your mighty power and in your name. Amen.